peace is something that everybody seems to want in life. Between world peace, peace with nations, peace among people, peace among your neighbors, peace in your own life. The peace has just something about it that we all kind of wish and long for. Isaiah, as he has been speaking about this coming kingdom, he's speaking about a a time to come when the Christ would arrive and he would establish his throne, begin to rule over the earth and rule over the nations. He begins to describe some characteristics of what it will be like to belong to that kingdom and what it will be like for those people who live in that kingdom, what they will experience. Isaiah chapter 26 is where we're at tonight as we've been studying Isaiah's message, his good news about what is to come. Isaiah has been prophesying about the doom of the nations. From chapter 13 through chapter 24, Isaiah described the annihilation of the nations and the laying of waste to the earth. But chapter 25 was a contrast where we saw in this great new kingdom that Christ would bring, there were two great blessings. The first being that those who would come to the mountain of the Lord would eat of rich food. This picture of banqueting, of fellowship with God. We noted how Jesus told many parables using that same imagery of a wedding feast. That had finally arrived and had come for the inhabitants of the earth, particularly to the Jewish nation and how they were rejecting that invitation. We see Isaiah also speak as a second blessing about there will be no more tears, that death will be swallowed up in victory. I look forward to exploring that deeply in our Sunday morning series of Risen because that is a quotation that the Apostle Paul takes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A great hope to come that death is not the end and those who belong to Christ will live. Now, as we come into chapter 26, you will notice the first couple of words, first three words in that day. Still talking about this time frame, still looking forward to the reign of the Messiah. He has contrasted the doom of the nation of Israel because of its sins. But one day down the road, there's going to be the Messiah. There's going to be the Christ. And here is what is going to happen. Verse 1 says, there's going to be this song that is going to be sung in the land of Judah. And here's what they're going to sing. Verse 1. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation may keep faith, that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. 
first section as he unfolds now what is going to happen in that day in describing this new kingdom that was going to come with the Christ. He says here, there is the statement they are going to say, we have a strong city. That is probably an image that is totally lost on us anymore in our society of the necessity of a strong city. But you needed a strong city in that day and time. You needed a city that had high walls, that had great towers, that was a mighty fortress with powerful armies so that you could defend and protect the inhabitants of the city from being attacked from enemies all around. You wanted to be in a city and live inside its walls so that you would have protection, that it would be your refuge, that you would have nothing to fear for any enemy that would come against you. We see that even somewhat humorously in the days of Daniel as the city of Babylon was believed to be impenetrable, that none could conquer such that they were reveling and feasting and having all kinds of parties inside. Well, God is sending the message through Daniel that it is over for you. And it is that very night that the Medes and the Persians are conquering that very city. You put your hope and trust in strong cities. It cannot be defeated. And I want you to notice the imagery that is described here in verse 1 as this is, is painted for us in this strong city. And how it has been contrasted to the wasted city that we looked at last week. That the ways of the world, the cities of the world, this imagery that reflects anything that stands against God, that does not put its trust or hope in God, is being utterly destroyed. Destroyed by God. We saw in that image last week how Isaiah prophesied anyone who would stand against God is going to receive judgment. But then here's this song of hope. We aren't in the wasted city. We aren't in the judge city. We are in the strong city. And notice how it is described. He says he sets up salvation as its walls. And bulwarks. What an image. There is a strong city that exists that's going to come. The people who are in that city are going to be safe. And the walls of this city are not high towers. They are not thick walls that you could run chariots on or anything like that. The walls of this city, the thing that protects the inhabitants, is the salvation that God has built. That's the image. Here is this beautiful picture that the strength of this city is not found in humans. It is not found in the power of humanity. It is not found in some kind of vast army. It is found in the strength of God who has built these walls with the salvation that He offers. All the other cities of the earth are being laid waste in Isaiah's vision. But there is one city that stands strong. There is one city that cannot fall. Who are the people that get to enter into this glorious city? Notice it in verse 2. Who gets to come in through the gates? Notice it is not just an individual. It is not just one or two people, but he pictures a whole nation. There is going to be a whole group of people who are going to belong to this city. He calls them a righteous nation there in verse 2 that keeps faith. The ones who are faithful to the Lord. And there is not going to be just a few. 
But he describes them as a nation unto itself that are going to enter into the gates and they are going to be protected by God. The strength of that protection is the salvation that God gives to those people such that they dwell in security. In fact, notice verse 3, what they dwell in. It says they dwell in shalom, shalom. I think all of our translations say perfect peace. Literally, it says they dwell in peace, peace. And the reason why all our translations say perfect peace is because when you double it, you mean it is perfected. They will all live in shalom, shalom. They will have perfect peace in this city. There will be rest there. There will be real stability, real peace in the lives of those who are dwelling in this city, who put their trust in God, who are faithful to the Lord, and whose salvation of God, that's what they rely upon as their strength. Think of the contrast of what has happened. Isaiah's prophesying to the nation of Israel and Judah. They have put their hope in Assyria to be able to defend them from these enemies. They've in previous times put their hope in Egypt to be able to deal with the enemies. And here Isaiah says, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to have a righteous nation, a faithful people. and They're not going to put their trust in these false nations, false peoples, false cities. Their walls are going to be the walls of salvation that God builds. They're going to trust that it doesn't matter what the odds look like. It doesn't matter what the enemies are or who they are or where they come from. The walls are the salvation of God and there's nobody that can penetrate that wall. That's what God would want these people to do. When God had come to Ahaz and says, don't worry about them. They're two smolding fire and firebrands. Don't worry about them. They did not believe in the strength that God was offering them. He says, I'm going to have a people who will believe in that. And recognize the imagery that's being given to us. There's no peace outside of this city. From chapter 13 all the way to chapter 24, he has described nation after nation, city after city, falling, falling, falling. Chapter 24, the whole earth is laid waste, he says. Why is he doing that? Because he's trying to get all the readers to understand the only place to find peace, the only place to find stability, the only place to have any hope in this life is in God. He is the only place that it comes from. To put our hope and trust in anything outside of who God is, is utter failure and will be utterly laid waste. And we're going to look at how Isaiah explores that quite a bit. I want you to feel what it means to live in security in a secure, strong city like this. What God is telling His people Only when you are living with Him, that your trust is inside the walls of salvation, can you truly be at rest no matter what happens in this life. Only when your hope is completely bound in God and not bound up in the things of this world, bound up in the cares of life, 
not worried about the physical or the material, but truly bound in God, only then can you truly find the peace and stability that Isaiah is picturing, no matter what happens, no matter how sick we get, no matter how out of the blue death may strike, no matter how awful or terrible circumstances might be. The only time there can be peace is a recognition that my hope is not in these things, but only in God. And that's why he uses such powerful imagery like in verse 4, the Lord God is an everlasting rock. What a picture. We have a song, everything else is but sinking sand. Yeah. There's only one rock. There's only one foundation. There's only one place of stability in life. That's only in God. To look for our hope and stability, for foundation, for something to stand on in anything else is utter misery and failure. Notice how he pictures this as well, because he says there in verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. He pictures what it looks like to live inside this strong city, be protected by the walls of salvation of God. Our minds are not focused in this world. Our minds are focused squarely on God. And our trust is squarely on our Lord. Everything else in life is movable. Everything else is shakable in this life. He is the rock. We put our minds firmly on Him. Our focus is on Him. Our eyes are upon Him. Everything we do in this life is about Him, He says. And I want you to see what He's getting at. Israel, you have failed at this. But I am going to have a righteous nation one day when my Messiah comes. When the Christ arrives, there's going to be people. There's going to be a whole nation of them, a whole group of them. And they're going to put their trust in me. Their minds will be focused on me. And they won't put their hopes in the things of this world or by other nations or the things that they see. It'll be in the walls of salvation that God builds. That'll be their only hope. That's what a Christian looks like. That's the picture of what Isaiah says will happen down the road when Christ comes, builds His kingdom, and has His followers. Verses 5 and 6 explore the idea a little bit more by pointing out to us the proud don't enter. And that's implying to us because verse 5 tells us that God is humbling all the inhabitants of the high. You think you're somebody, you're nothing. If you are proud, you are being brought low. In fact, he describes it the lofty city. Here's another description of the the wasted city. We who put our hope in the things of this world or put our trust in anything else, he says, I'm going to crush that city. I will take that lofty city and I will throw it down. Only those who are humble are those who enter in. And I think we understand why. Because it requires humility to recognize that the things of this life will not help. It takes a great amount of humility to say, I cannot save myself. I cannot depend upon myself. 
I can't do what I need to do to get to that final goal. I need God to do it. I have to rely upon His walls of salvation. Are such industrious, independent Americans who can do everything. And he pictures that those who belong to this city rely completely upon the Lord. They don't think of themselves as the ones who are accomplishing all of this. In fact, you'll notice what he gives us in the next few verses as he describes the way of the faithful. Listen to verse 7. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Notice how he describes the life of the faithful, what this new nation of people who belong to the Christ, how they will live. And he first he pictures it as a path that is divinely smoothed. And what he's getting at here is that God blesses those who are going to go down that path, who are going to put their trust in the strong city, who are going to put their hope in the ways of God. He says those are the people that God is going to bless. I don't believe the message is saying now those who put their hope in God, God is going to make everything easy. He's going to smooth every mountain and knock over every obstacle so it's going to be easy for you. The reason why I don't think that's the meaning is because Jesus said quite the opposite. He told us quite clearly that the way to him and to belong to his kingdom, he said, it is narrow. It is difficult. There are few who find it. it is not the easy path. But the point is the faithful recognize that that is the easier way to go. We recognize that that is the path we want to walk. We know that that's the way we need to go. That is the best course of life. To choose any other path, to rely upon any other city as Isaiah is using here, is folly. We're going to be crushed. We will not have peace. We are not going to have stability. We're going to be wrecked and attacked. Those who understand that recognize the path of God and understand its challenges, but know that it is the divinely smooth path. It is the way that we are to go. In fact, he says along that, he says in verse 8, In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Those who belong to this city walk in the ways of God's laws. They want to know what God has to say. If we want the peace that God is offering, the stability to be able to handle whatever happens in life, to have the hope of that salvation that God is offering for those to come into those gates. He says, those people walk in my ways. They seek my paths. They want to do what I say. They put their reliance upon the laws of God. And not only do they put their hope in the laws of God, listen to verse 8, the middle there. Uh, This is great. Your name and your remembrance, your renown are the desires of our soul. Those who belong to this city, you want to know what they care about? 
You want to know what is their desire? You want to know what their deepest concern is? God's name. God's honor. God's renown. God's glory. The people who belong to this city recognize, honor, glorify, worship, and celebrate God. They want God to be praised. They want God to be worshipped. They want God to be celebrated. We do not want anything else but that God receive the glory that He ought to receive. That He receive the praise that He ought to give. That He receive the honor that is due Him. I love the words of that. There's a good refrigerator verse buried right here in the heart of Isaiah. Here's our hope. Here's our praise. Him. My desire, he says, the desire of my soul. Oh God, it's your name. May it all boil down to the name of God. May it all boil down to his reputation, to his renown, to his remembrance, that all would desire him, that all would seek him. This world is in desperate need of getting the attention back on the name and renown and honor of God. As God continues to be put down, set aside, ignored, forgotten, and neglected, those who truly trust in God, those who belong to the city of salvation, their single hope is in giving God the glory He's supposed to get and desiring that all have that. In fact, you see it stated again there in verse 9. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. These are the lifestyles of the faithful. This is their one focus. Their single pursuit. The one thing that matters. Seeking the Lord. Proclaiming His name. Glory belonging to God above all else. Glory belongs nowhere else. Honor belongs nowhere else. Renown belongs nowhere else but in the Lord. I love what Isaiah does. Is he just kind of stands there and preaches to the people and he tells them, you all have failed, Israel. But I see down the road one day, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to have a people. And the people who walk into the city of salvation, that strong city, that's going to be all they care about. That's going to be their everything. It will be all about God and all about His glory and about earnestly seeking that glory and walking in His ways because He is glorious and He deserves our praise. Watch the turning in verse 10. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly. He does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see. 
Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries, for your adversaries, consume them. What a statement. Here's the contrast. The world, when God pours out his grace and pours out his blessings and does all the good things that he does, he says the world doesn't see it. That's the implication. The faithful do. The faithful do. The world doesn't see it. And here Isaiah says, these good tidings and blessings and grace of God is supposed to cause people to come to righteousness. They're supposed to see all that God has done. And this is going to propel them to come into the city. But he says they don't do it. They don't see it. They don't see all that God has done. They don't see His glory. They don't see His grace. They don't see His activity. They don't see His blessings. And therefore, they're worthy of judgment. They don't see, verse 10, look at the very end of that. They don't see the majesty of the Lord. The faithful see the majesty of the Lord in everything that happens, in all that is around them. The faithful look and see God at work. And I submit to you that's how we have moved from being the ungodly, the enemies, as Romans 5 would describe, to walking into the city of God, the strong city. That's what does it. Is that God has done all these things and we go, I need to respond. I've got to respond to what he's done. I have to respond to these blessings. His goodness is supposed to drive the change. It's supposed to move us to come to him. It's supposed to drive us to follow him. It's supposed to drive us into that singular pursuit so that his glory and his renown is the only thing that we see his majesty and we want him to be honored and glorified because of that in all that we do and all that we say. We want that to happen throughout the earth. Because he's done so many great and wonderful things. And so he tells them, turn to the Lord and act before it's too late. Turn to the Lord and see his goodness. We live in a time right now that challenges us in one certainly particular way. Is that it is easy as this consumer society that we live in, we just consume everything, everything is about us, it's for us, it revolves around us, we're supposed to be having it our way, the way we want it, whatever's fast, convenient, comfortable, it is all about us. And the challenge and the difficulty that we possess in this time like that is to not take all of the blessings and grace and goodness of God and do the exact same thing and just consume it and not turn it back to the glory of God. We just enjoy it. We don't give God the thanks. We don't show it to other people around us. We just go, that was a good burger and we're done. It's just like it was Burger King. God poured it out. We consumed it. Thank you. Because we're in this consumer-driven society. And we're not recognizing what Isaiah is picturing. The faithful, they see the majesty of God. 
They see the blessings in their lives pouring down. They see the grace that's been poured out. And they don't just consume it and sit there and go, wow, that was really neat. It bounces back to the glory of God. That's their singular focus. It's all about it going back to the honor and worship and praise and glory of God and everything. Everything that we do, everything that we have, everything that we are all about is simply because of God. In fact, notice verse 12 even says it that way. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. Now listen to this. For you have indeed done for us all our works. That's a strange kind of way to put that, isn't it? You're going to accomplish this. You're going to bring us this perfect peace and security and foundation. Why? Because God, you're doing it. Because indeed you've done all these things. You're accomplishing it. We're seeing your good hand at work. It is a recognition that all that we have, all that we have experienced, all that we are consuming, all that we have is given to us by God. That is not idle words in James Rice that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift that comes down from heaven. It's God's. It's not ours. It's not by my doing. He's given it. He's blessed us richly. Every spiritual blessing, every spiritual gift, every physical thing that we have, every material blessing. He says, God has done it. And that's why I rebound the glory back to God. He says, you're accomplishing it. You're bringing it about. You've ordained this peace. You have established it. You have done what is needed for us to be able to enter into that city. You have accomplished all that is required so that we have the ability to find that peace, to find that salvation, to belong to the city. This is not a story of, well, God's going to find better righteous people. Mm -mm. No, God's going to do something amazing. He's going to accomplish a great work so that we could enter into the city, though we are the ungodly. He's going to make a way so that we can enter into that great city. And that should change how we live. Look at verse 13. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. But your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. What a statement. He says, we've had other masters. We've had other people rule over us. We've been enslaved to other peoples. But the faithful recognize that there's no life in those masters. The faithful recognize that submitting to those masters is of no value. It's of no use. There's no hope in those masters. Oh, how we enslave ourselves to so many foolish things. And here he says the faithful recognize the worthlessness of these false ways, these false masters. 
go to the grocery store, turn on the television, find a magazine. Everything promotes over and over again. You know, the reason why you don't have joy and fulfillment is because your sexual life just isn't quite right. And so 15 ways of this and 14 ways of that, and this would be better for your life. And oh, now you'd have joy if you just picked up this magazine. It's all about that. Or a world that says it's, you just don't have the right partner. You need to find somebody else. Get divorced. Find somebody else that you need. Have an affair. It's okay. Then you'll find your joy and satisfaction. There's a statement of, well, you just need to have pornography. That's going to make it all better. Just engage in sexual morality. What you need is more power. If you just had more power to tell people what to do, you'd be happier. If you were just successful, if you could just climb up the ladder more and make more money and have more success, that would be it. That would bring you your joy. That would give it to you. If you just had more wealth, if you just made more money, if you just worked harder, if you had a better career, if you had a different identity, if you lived in a different place. Well, the books and the magazines and the TV shows never end. Keep cycling through the same thing over and over and over again. If you just had this, this would be the answer. And that's why I love this line. Oh, we've had many masters. Oh, yes, we have. We have subjected ourselves to every kind of false idol, false god, and false master. And what have we found? They're empty and dead. There's only one thing that will bring life. And that's what he describes there. That's why I love how he words it. Other lords have ruled over us, verse 13, but your name alone will bring to remembrance. We've gone through all that, but the faithful recognize that any other path is emptiness. Putting my hope and trust and joy and foundation and strength in anything else but the strong city of God whose walls are salvation, it is hopeless. It lacks satisfaction. It won't give you anything. That's why it says verse 14. They're dead. They're dead. I love those visual images in the Old Testament of that. Philistines get the Ark of the Covenant, prop up their little Dagon God. Okay, who's stronger? Dagon falls down, bowing down to the true and living God. Oh, go prop him back up again. Make him fall down again, break him and Who's the true and living God? Who are you going to serve? Everything else is dead. No, we don't have statues, but we have all the same idols. All the same false masters, all the same false gods that pretend to tell us that this is the way of satisfaction and joy and peace and comfort, tranquility and stability. And they are empty, empty ways of life. Verse 15, you are glorified. The faithful act for the glory of God and do anything to bring about that glory. Have you noticed that theme through this chapter? It's all about the glory of God. It's all about what he deserves. It's recognizing what he's accomplished for us and then rebounding that glory back to God. Now listen to verse 16. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs. When she is near to give birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to the wind. 
We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of this world have not fallen off. This then summarizes the whole problem. Self-sufficiency, he says, it's like giving birth to the wind. That's what he's describing there in verse 18. We tried it ourselves. We tried to deliver ourselves. We tried relying upon ourselves. We tried to accomplish it ourselves. So it didn't work. So all we got was the wind. I love that the teacher of Ecclesiastes uses that same imagery. Same imagery. As you pursue everything there is in this life, he says, you all know what you're doing. Chasing the wind. You're giving birth to the wind. You're just chasing it. You don't understand that we cannot bring the satisfaction to ourselves that our soul desires. This self-sufficiency does not bring what we think it's going to bring. In fact, he describes two things that it in fact does bring. Number one, he says it brings God's judgment. When we do not put our hope and trust in Him and put all the glory back to Him for all that He's done, He says, you all know what happens. As you depend upon yourself and rely upon yourself, He says, guess what? You get God's judgment. He says, that's what we've experienced. When your discipline was upon them, verse 16. It just puts us in a place of the wrath of God. We try to do it ourselves, do it ourselves. It's all about us. And so self-sufficiency brings about God's judgment. And it brings about senseless suffering. We put ourselves into a place where we put ourselves into more pain. He uses the imagery of the travail of labor only to get nothing out of it. Go through all of that effort, all of that work. The point is our self-sufficiency is completely useless. It is pointless. It has no value. And I want us to recognize what Isaiah is saying, that God can free us from that. Are you pursuing the empty ways of this world? Are you trying to find your hope in something? That isn't going to do it? Are you trying to find it in a sin? Are you trying to find it in some material activity? Career activity? What is it that you're trying to find in the ways of this world that doesn't cause us, that keeps us, it becomes an obstacle to us from putting our full trust in the strong city of God? What do we think is going to bring us that joy? Is it wealth that we think? Is it comfort? Convenience? Ease? What is it? What is it that we're putting our hope in? Here's the hope that God offers. Verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. He pulls in what we've seen from chapter 13 all the way through to this point and draws some conclusions for us. As he speaks here in verse 19 of new life, the dead shall rise. 
I do not believe he is speaking of in the end time every individual who is in Christ is going to rise, but is parallel to Ezekiel 37. Here is going to be a new nation. There's going to be a new Israel. Here is this Israel and it is being shown to be dead and worthless because they have not trusted in God. They have not put their hope in Him. They have put their hope in Assyria, in Egypt, in the ways of the world, in their false idols and gods. And here is Isaiah saying, but here's what I see. I see a new group of people rising from the dead and God is going to give them life. And they are going to enter into that city and they're going to find the peace that I was promising. They're going to enjoy that salvation that these people would not. In fact, the imagery is very powerful because verse 20 and 21 describes God coming up and ready to act. Here is God pictured as he's going to move over the earth and execute his judgments. We read about it from chapter 13 all the way to 24, nation after nation. And then the whole earth is described in chapter 24. And here's the imagery. Here is the world coming under judgment. I want you to visualize that. Imagine that in a physical way. Imagine if we had the information. There is going to be a cataclysmic world judgment. And everybody is going to experience the wrath of God. All are going to die. Except for what this chapter has described. Those who enter the strong city. Whose walls are salvation. You can be saved from the wrath to come. You can be saved from the due justice that's supposed to be coming. Upon all the earth and none will escape. If you enter into the strong city, God is rising to act. This judgment is certain. He is moving to bring it. But those who will put their trust in him will be spared. In fact, the imagery of verse 20 is so amazing. It's Passover imagery. Verse 20, go into the chamber, shut the doors behind you. And what's going to happen? Stay in there for a while until the fury passes by. It's an imagery of the new Exodus again, a new Passover occurring as the wrath of God is moving against all ungodliness so that those who will come into the city will be secure. God will pass by. Here's Isaiah saying, I'm looking out to the road down the way. There are people. There is a nation who faithfully trust me, who put their complete reliance upon me, who seek my glory above anything else, who appreciate the blessings and grace that has been bestowed upon them. He says, they shall enter into the gates. They are the ones that will be safe and secure when God's judgment falls upon all the earth. The judgment is unavoidable. Will we be willing to set aside the false gods and false idols the false ways of this world, the things that we put our hope and trust in and enter into the strong city of God, the salvation that he is offering the whole world. The whole world can be spared of this. The judgment is certain. But will you come into the gates? And not only are you being spared judgment, he says, I'll keep you in perfect peace. 
I'll give you the stability. I'll give you the hope. I'll give you the everlasting rock. So that no matter what happens in this world, you know you're with God. And that's all that matters. Nothing else matters. If I'm with God, nothing else matters. But without that hope, I feel the doom when health goes bad, when things go wrong, when circumstances are a mess, when everything turns upside down. But God's everything. And that's what gives you hope to be like Job, that no matter what happens, naked I came into this world, and naked I go, so blessed be the name of the Lord. Whatever happens, happens, I'm ready. Because I'm in the city of God. Won't you come to the city of God? Won't you find salvation? Won't you find true hope, an everlasting rock, a foundation for your life? No matter what happens, thick and thin, whatever goes on, God's your hope. God is your trust. Set aside the false idols. We've had many masters. We've had many false gods. See them for their emptiness. See them as dead, lifeless. They do not give you your satisfaction that they think they'll give you. Only one person does. God. Nobody else. Only God. Enter to the gates of joy. Find your hope there. Turn away from those sins. And once you come, maybe immerse in water and have your sins washed away. Have that great hope. Once you come, always stay close.